Happy Monday, my friends. Last week, I told you that I would explain an opportunity for you to win one of my workshop gift bags, which will have products from the five mom-run businesses that have been featured on the podcast the last couple of weeks. This is a $100 value, and several of you will win. They're my leftover gift bags. And all you have to do is fill out a 3 in 30 demographics survey. And some of you have already done this because on Friday, which was my birthday, (laughs) I shared these on Instagram and asked that you fill out the survey. And many, many of you did it as a birthday present to me. And thank you for that. So if you've already filled it out, you're entered in the giveaway. And if you haven't, I would absolutely love for you to take three to five minutes right now, seriously, pause the podcast and come back to fill out this quick, simple survey that will help me so much. Many of the questions come from potential sponsors of the show who want to get a feel for just who is listening to 3 and 30, what our community is like. And there's a few questions that I've added to find out where I should be putting most of my time and energy. Because as you know, I've been making a big effort to really um, be present with my family and take care of my health, as well as continue running this podcast that I love. So it's will just really help me to hear from you and to know what things you value about 3 and 30, what you want more of, what you don't really use. All of that's in the survey. It really will just take you three to five minutes. It's not long. And it would mean so much to me, even if you aren't interested in winning a gift bag. Can you please fill out the survey? You can honestly pause right now and go and fill that out. There's a link in the show notes, or you can go to 3in30podcast.com forward slash survey. It would mean so much to me and be so, so helpful. So push pause and then come back. All right, are you back? (laughs) Thank you for doing that. And today is episode 84, the three C's of transformative discipline in our homes. Welcome to 3 and 30, a podcast for moms who want to create more meaning in motherhood. Each 30-minute episode will feature three doable takeaways for you to try at home with your family this week. I'm your host, Rachel Nielsen. Thank you so much for being here. I'm back this week with Katherine Reynolds-Lewis, the author of The Good News About Bad Behavior, Why Kids Are Less Disciplined Than Ever, and What to Do About It. Last week, Catherine taught us that children today are fundamentally different from children of past generations, not because they're born different, but because the world they're growing up in is so different. In previous generations, typical kids develop self-regulation skills through just their day-to-day life of playing with friends, being outside, and working alongside their families. But modern cultural factors, including less unstructured play and time outdoors, more exposure to media and technology, and more pressure from academic and extracurricular expectations are undermining the natural development of impulse control, self-confidence, and patience within our kids. And if you missed last week's episode, you're really going to want to go back and listen to that. There's been a huge response of mothers who really resonated with it. And as mothers, we can work to combat those three cultural modern factors by being deliberate about the kinds of activities and expectations that we encourage in our homes. But today's discussion takes that one step further. 
Catherine Reynolds Lewis spent over five years researching parenting and discipline techniques, observing experts and talking to brain scientists, and she found that there are many effective discipline methods in practice today that teach children how to take ownership of their choices and their emotions and gain the emotional skills they need to self-regulate. And though the specifics of each of these different discipline methods varies, they all have three key factors in common, and that is what Catherine will be teaching us about today. I'm so excited to continue this conversation from last week. Here's the interview. Catherine, welcome back to 3 and 30. My pleasure being back to talk to you. So I want to start today by talking about the title of your book, which I love. Um, what's funny is that my seven-year-old has seen me reading this book. And so yesterday I told him that I was going to be interviewing you. And he said, oh, the author of The Good News About Bad Behavior. <laughs> like, it is such like a catchy title. And he's interested to know what I'm learning about his bad behavior. So um, that title, what is The Good News About Bad Behavior? So, well, the good news about bad behavior, first of all, as we said last week, it's totally normal. This is our kids' childhood. There's a lot more chaotic, dysregulated, mis misbehaving kids. So, uh, you know, I always like to normalize it for parents that you're not alone. We're all experiencing this crisis of self-regulation. And the true good news is that there are so many research-backed, road-tested models for teaching kids to self-regulate to manage themselves, to behave as is needed in a situation. And all we need to do is really understand what's out there already and how, you know, which strategies and ideas and, and models are going to work with our kids. Right. I love having a more positive spin on it where you see misbehavior as not necessarily this bad, what is wrong with this child, but as an opportunity almost exactly. to to practice your parenting and to teach them that when they misbehave, you, you sort of see it as like, oh, okay, well, here's an opportunity for me to teach them a skill that is lacking. Right. And it's also, um, thank goodness there's signaling and we're aware of where the gaps are because some kids do just go inside and they internalize. And those are the kids I really worry about where you think like, oh, everything's mm -hmm. perfect. And then suddenly sophomore year of high school, they, you know, have not have a nervous breakdown and you realize they've been struggling with anxiety anxiety and depression all along. So, yes. so it's, so it's great that your child is giving you this big red flag of like, Hey mom or dad, I, I need help with this skill. Yes. And you've developed through all of your research and, you know, years and years of research and also learning about brain studies and scans. That's what fascinated me the most about your book was reading about all the brain scans and studies that you've looked into. Um, you've developed these three C's that parents can make a part of their, quote, discipline. And discipline, you know, it's kind of a loaded word, but um, the way that they teach and guide their children using these three characteristics that all begin with C. Yeah. So we're going to start, we're going to use those as the basis for the three takeaways today. Yeah. So, and, and since you mentioned discipline, this book truly returns discipline to its root meaning, which is to teach. It's not yes. about punishments or rewards or getting people to do what we want. And um, I spent five years looking at the most effective discipline models in that sense that teach kids to self-regulate and found that they all have in common these three C's. So number one is connection. And that's the relationship between the adult and child where we really have so much going on that we're not even aware of. 
And I'll just, you know, call up one um, research study that I write about in the book where I actually volunteered to have my parenting judged by Columbia University neuroscientists. So, <laughs> so yeah, brave. Exactly. Not everyone would do this, but I wanted to understand what they know about the, how we teach our kids about emotions. And since we see anxiety so much on the rise, um, you know, are we communicating fearfulness to our kids without being aware of it? And they hooked up me and my daughter with electrodes so they could measure our heart rates, our breathing, our sweat response. They even look at the level of cortisol in our saliva, which is a rough proxy for stress. And what they're discovering is fascinating how much we are connected with our kids that they put um, me and Ava in a room. And just for a couple minutes, we sat there, didn't talk to each other, just silently read magazines side by side. And within a couple minutes, our breathing started to synchronize our heart rate started to synchronize. There's all this subconscious connection that we're influencing our children and they're influencing us. Mm. So it's really natural that when our kids are tantruming or screaming or being defiant or even just losing it and melting down, our heart rate starts to go up, right? Our breathing starts to quicken. We want to yell back and sort of become dysregulated ourselves. That's a natural response. But if we do, we know that they will get even more dysregulated in turn. They'll yell back. They're really going to get out of control with their physiology. So instead, if we can, you know, take a deep breath or whatever we need to find our zen, you know, to, mm -hmm. to get, get back in a regulated state ourselves and then respond to the kid, we will have a better shot at reaching them. And so yes. many different ways in my five years of research for this book, I saw that connection relationship is the foundation that has to happen first. If we try to discipline our kids before we have that connection, or if at a point in when our relationship's a little broken, it's not going to go well. <laughs> yes. And I've seen this play out where our physiology can we, you know, like you said, we mirror each other with our, our physiology right. starts to mirror. And so if you remain calm and, and anchored, then that can really bring down your children's arousal when they're in that state. So right. I, from, after learning about some of these strategies, I have a son who's really, has really strong emotions. And one day he was, I don't even remember what the cause, he couldn't find his Harry Potter wand or something. Mm -hmm. And it just turned into full blown meltdown. And I kept saying like, come give me a hug. And of course he didn't want that right then. Yeah. And so what I did was I just went and I just laid in his bed and I just said, when you're ready, I'm here, you yeah. know? And, and he just like paced it out. And then after a few minutes he came over. And of course my instinct is stop that screaming. You're overreacting. Right. This right. is ridiculous, right. you know, but I just stayed calm and he came over and just crawled into bed and wrapped his arms around me. Aww. And his anger turned into, you know, he was started crying and telling me about something hard that had happened at school that day. Mm -hmm. And so he didn't really realize that that's why he was feeling upset about his wand yeah. until he was given the opportunity to relax and connect. And then he could talk to me about what he was feeling. So I've definitely seen this bless my family when my, especially my super emotional firstborn, that when I can stay calm and connect with him, then he's able to self-regulate, which is yeah. what we talked about in last week's episode, 
that the most important thing that we can do is teach our kids how to self-regulate. Yes. And that physical touch, the cuddle with your son, the hug. There's also all this research, as you know, that I wrote about in the book around the power of physical touch mm-hmm. and helping another person self-regulate, especially someone that you're as close to as a parent and child are close. And so that physical touch is another really powerful tool that we use, but we don't always know how important it is. So my hope is with the book, you know, explaining how important this is from like the science side that we'll just do it more. And you may not believe that a kid who's like losing it is going to want a hug, but they do. That's what they need. They need Mm -hmm. that connection with you. Um, Another really great tool I write about in the book is special time, this sort of one-on-one, one adult, one child totally sacred. Um, You don't get disturbed by your phone or uh, cooking a meal or other things on your to-do list. You just focus on them and a shared activity that doesn't have a screen involved. And, And that is a sort of great way to fill kids' buckets and connect with them so that the next time you do have a conflict, they'll be in a more resilient state of mind and you're And your um, relationship will be healthier to be able to weather that conflict. Yes. I love that, that you're giving, you give ideas for kind of like proactive connection. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, you connect every day, even when there's no problem and that builds up their reserves. And then also you connect with them when they're in the midst of a really hard moment, you can give them a physical touch or um, what are some other ideas you have for if they're really tantruming, what can we do to connect with them? Yeah, well, I, I think exactly what you did in that anecdote with your son is to, you know, sometimes our kids are just overwhelmed and they can't they can't be reached because they're in that fight or flight state and their their brain that's you know solve problems is not online, and mm. so it, you know we're often tend to be like, okay, stay in your room until you calm down, but we'll do it in a way that may seem to them to be punishing, and instead, if we can say. I see you're really upset. I'm here when you are ready to talk. We take the exact same action, you know, of not, of not being next to them if they don't, if they can't really be reached, but we've given them an explanation. We've showed them the path back to connect with us. So we're able to stay connected with them, even though they are just totally dysregulated. Um, Another great strategy that I like that I found in my research um, that actually comes out of the parent encouragement program here in the D.C. area is to connect before you correct. So this looks like, you know, walk in the, the room and you see your child who was supposed to be getting ready for school on their iPad. Right. And our first instinct is like, what are you doing? You know, you're not supposed to be on your iPad. Get your shoes on and this sort of yelling, angry, big response, which is very likely to trigger a power struggle or a meltdown or nothing good. And instead, if we can put an arm around them and say, oh my gosh, you love that game and kind of tap the watch, time for school, that'll get them back on track. It doesn't mean there's no consequence to breaking the rule because I recommend we have screen rules in our house and they have consequences that are agreed on in advance, but you don't have to be angry or mean about it. You can just be kind and firm about like time for school and no iPad later or no iPad time today or whatever your agreed on consequences for breaking the rules. Um, Yes. One thing that really probably the most impactful portion of your book to me was where you talked about the individuals who struggle with depression and anxiety and they, they, the researcher, and of course I'm probably messing this up, so correct me, but, um, the researcher got, had them write scripts of the criticisms that they'd received from their mother. Yes. 
that cut my heart because I'm like scripts that they received from their mother, like that my kids could probably rattle off, like, what are the scripts that are the things my mom always harps on me for? And then they, they played those while they were in the MRI machine and they could see the parts of their brain lighting up that were like, I'm under attack. I'm yeah. fearful. Right. Is yeah. that how that study went? Right. That's, so that's Jill Hooley at Harvard. And she's actually building on a huge body of research from the developmental psychology that shows people who have a very critical relative, like usually a parent or a spouse are more likely to relapse into depression, um, schizophrenia, eating disorders, a whole range of, um, disorders if they're if they have a critical relative versus if they have a less judgmental relative so um she's just showing us what it looks like in the brain so because she's using an mri machine she can tell us which brain structures are in operation and so yes really like who would imagine signing up for a study where you listen to your mom's criticism while your mm, brain but i observed this and it really is fascinating that you know, people just, you go right into that ch- child, even adults listening to that criticism, we go right into that vulnerable child um, state and and they can Ugh. see that you're kind of snapping back into a depressive mode of operating. So yeah. Um, and, and what so I was telling my husband about this last night, we went for a walk and I was telling him and he's like, wait, these were middle-aged people that were listening to the criticism of their mother and reacting that way. And I was like, yes, like we think that this stuff doesn't stay with us, but it does. And it just made me think that I want to give my children scripts that are positive. And I want, you know, um, like you said, you can still hold them to behavioral expectations, but connect with them first and, um, you know, have a, have a, a nonverbal cue to remind them or to just limit the nagging and the criticism that really does become a part of what they hear internally about themselves. Right. Yeah. We don't want those adjectives of like, you were bad or you were lazy or you were, you know, violent or to be part of their self-image. We want them to see ways that they can change their behavior because if it's an adjective describing them, that that becomes part of who they think they are. Whereas if it's a choice they made or a behavior, then that's something they have control over and they can grow out of. And we yes. always want to give our kids that path to, you know, behave the way that the situation demands. Yes. And another really fascinating thing about that study to me was that um, I believe you said that they, if you asked them if those criticisms bothered them, they would say no, or they would say, oh, it's mildly annoying, you know, when my mom says those things, but their brain was showing that it was much more significant to them than what they were admitting to as adults. Right. Right. Because so interesting. Yeah. We get so used to it. It just becomes sort of this, like, you know, we're used to the attack and that's, I mean, it was very powerful for me as well, Rachel, because I come from that tradition of like, you improve when you're told you're bad (laughs) or like, Mm. you know, when you, you know, and love is showing our children, you know, giving them criticism so they don't get too big for their britches. And I had to very, very dramatically change the way that I interact with my kids because it's my first instinct often is I walk into a room and instead of seeing the hundred wonderful things my kid has done, I see the smear of chocolate on their face, right? I see the one flaw. And so I had to train myself to see all the many positive things that are happening. Yeah. I love that. Just proactively connecting with them in advance by having special time. And then in the moment of the heated moment to stay open and warm 
and to physically connect with them or to just say, I'm here if you need me. Right. When you're ready, I'm here. Yeah. Okay, great. And then what is the second C? So the second C is communication. And here I'm not talking about talking. I'm not talking about the nagging or the bossing or the managing that we all slip into once in a while or a lot of the time. I'm talking about communication aimed at building their social and emotional skills, asking questions, posing what ifs, getting more information. We're helping them to process and build their problem solving skills and their critical thinking skills instead of kind of the bossing or telling them what they should or shouldn't have done. So this can look like the kid comes home from school without a binder. And my first reaction is, oh, I can't believe you forgot your binder again. Didn't we talk about how to do that? And where did you leave it? How could you be so irresponsible or careless? And instead, you know, like, oh, huh. So what, what happened? What do you think you could do next time? Or what, what, what ideas do you have for not forgetting the, you know, tomorrow or remembering to get it? And, and going into that problem solving is just better for our kids. It's building their skills instead of tearing them down. Mm. So it's communicating that with them about the problem and helping them to pull in their own problem solving skills to figure it out instead of just harping on them. I mean, this really goes back to what we just talked about with criticism. Yeah. It's like communicating with respect and letting them have some independence. Right. And letting them have a say in the solution. So we often mm. think, well, my kid misbehaves. They need a consequence, which is just a euphemism for punishment. And what our kids need when they misbehave is teaching. They need to learn from that experience. And the other thing about communication, I would say, is it's not just in negative situations. It's also about how we communicate with our kids about their worth, about their choices. So simple, very simple example of our kid draws a picture and we can say, oh, how beautiful. You're such an amazing artist, which is a value judgment, which is a sort of generalization that causes them to maybe be a little bit more of a praise junkie. They want to hear that again. Instead, we could say, oh my gosh, you drew a sunset with a blue a rainbow, a blue and green rainbow. How did you choose those colors? And that causes them to, to reflect and think about their own choices. So it's that um, focus on their intrinsic motivation of what they decided to do. And intrinsic motivation is so connected with mental health. Whereas mm -hmm. this extrinsic focus where you're seeking praise from the world or from your parents or from Instagram, you know, you're seeking validation that is associated with anxiety, depression, narcissism. And it's just not good when our kids are looking outside themselves for validation versus having a, a sense, a true north inside their own selves. And I feel like that leads really well into your third C as well. So tell us about that. Yes. So the third C is where all of that hard work, connecting thoughtfully and communicating very strategically, that work pays off because we see our kids grow in their capability. So the third, th the third C is capability building, both in the sort of little life skills around the house and the social and emotional skills. So this means that we are always seeing our kids as works in progress and as capable of growth and change. So we want to help them get better at those social and emotional learning skills. And then also the life skills where they can, um, you know, help us cook, help us clean, help us, you know, around the house that they're going to learn how to budget and um, troubleshoot electronics and sometimes better than we do, you know, so that they really have a sense that they are contributing to the smooth running of our household, that they have a place where they really matter. And that that extends to our neighborhoods and our communities and their school communities and the broader 
world that we live in so that our kids see themselves as an actor. Hmm. Yes. And I love, like we talked about last in last week's episode, that you have this emphasis on allowing kids to help, allowing kids to work. They build their capacity as they work alongside us. Um, and so often I think it, it's harder to have them work alongside us. It's, it's easier to just do it ourselves, yes. but that they need to feel that sense of ownership over their own capabilities that they're developing. And one passage that I absolutely loved in your book was page 25. It says, seen another way, children are unemployed. So yes. often their days are full of homework, music, sports, and extracurricular obligations, but no true responsibilities to the family or community. Nobody depends on them to care for a younger sibling, to clean the house, or to put dinner on the table. Adults think they're helping children by doing these tasks themselves or outsourcing them. In fact, not giving them simple household chores deprives kids of the chance to build skills and be useful. Just think about how disorienting and demoralizing it is for adults to find themselves jobless. Is it any surprise that children without any real responsibilities are increasingly anxious and depressed? Moreover, parents miss the opportunity to connect with kids while teaching them cleaning, laundry, cooking, bike repair, lawn work, and other necessary tasks. I thought that was so profound. And it's even in made a shift in our home the last week since I read that where Aww. I've been more willing. Like last night, my my four-year-old daughter, um, I let her help me cook the tortillas for dinner. I, we buy the uncooked ones from Costco. And I was nervous about letting her do that on the pancake skillet, but I let her do it. And sure enough, she could do it just fine. And I taught her how to hold the the spatula and we flipped it and we counted to 30 and then we flipped it again. And she was just thrilled by her contribution yeah. to the family. And we connected by working together. Yeah. Oh, oh, that just like gives me chills to think of that. That's a wonderful experience. And, and exactly that it's such a good connection opportunity. So we adults so often get stuck in like the to-do list and all the things we have to get done quickly to get to the next thing. But instead, if we can just take those opportunities to, you know, spend a little more time on the task for sure with a four-year-old or even a seven-year-old. But now my kids are 12 and 15 and they are really contributing and they take a load off of our plate. And and so our it, that early investment when they were little and it took three times as long to do it with them, you know, that pays off and, and they have such a great sense of pride. Um, and I'm sure she will have such a sense that she's capable in a way that her peers are not. And that's really something precious for the kids. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time, not just today, but also for last week's episode and for teaching us so much about why our kids misbehave. And that helps us to see that it's not about them and it's not about us. It's just childhood. It's just the life we live in. So we can take it less personally and just help them to build the skills that they need um, to survive in this modern world and to learn how to self-regulate in this world that isn't really going to teach them how to do that. So we need to do it. Right. Exactly. So, well, it's been a pleasure talking to you and connecting with your listeners and would love to you know, hear from anyone who um, is interested in more. Obviously would love to hear from anyone who reads or listens to the book, um, you know, if, if they have feedback or questions. And where can they find you to, to connect with you? Um, the best one-stop shop is my website, which is katherinrlewis.com. And that also has my you know Twitter and Instagram and uh, Facebook um, addresses as well. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Catherine, for your time. Thanks, Rachel. It's been a pleasure. 
I hope that these two interviews with Catherine Lewis have been as impactful for you as they have been for me. I truly have made some tweaks in the ways that I talk to my kids, in the ways that I allow them to help me and be involved in our home since reading this book. The biggest thing that I took away, a huge aha for me, was to see my children's misbehavior not as an inconvenience, a disruption, or even like a personal insult to me, but to instead think of it as an opportunity. That is a huge shift from seeing it as an inconvenience to seeing it as an opportunity for me to connect with them and to teach them. And the good news about that is that I know that if I blow it and I don't teach them well or I lose my temper and I miss that opportunity for learning with them, guess what? I'm surely going to have another opportunity to teach them and try again, maybe a few minutes later <laughs> when a difficult behavior arises again. So that this is what family life is supposed to look like. Us being advocates of each other, believing in each other and knowing when we mess up that we just, there's just some skills lacking and we can teach and learn and grow together and remain connected and loving as we do so. One of the things that Catherine said in the introduction of her book that really blew my mind was she made the point that kids really do want to behave. They want to please us. And so when they're not behaving, it's not because they don't want to, it's because they can't. They don't have the skills or they don't know how to. So she said that we need to stop thinking, why won't my children do what I want? And instead ask, why can't my children do what I want? And what can I do to teach them and help them to behave and to develop these skills of self-regulation? So when your children misbehave, which they will, just remember the three C's of effective transformative discipline. First, connection. Remember Catherine's mantra to connect before you correct. You can always correct a bit later after a child's physiological responses are calmer and they have more access to their thinking brain, but remaining calm and connected is the most important thing in those heated moments. Second, communication. The way that you communicate with your child will help him or her to gain a greater sense of control over their behavior and their emotions. So asking questions about their choices and giving them the opportunity to troubleshoot solutions will build confidence in them. And third, capability building. So your overarching goal should always be to help them become and feel more capable. So teaching them skills to manage their emotions, as well as skills to contribute to their family, the home, their world, so that they have a deep sense that they're needed. And this can happen in everyday interactions with your kids. I think sometimes we hear this and we feel overwhelmed, like, oh, I'm going to have to teach them how to do all these different things. But I just spent a week with my nieces and nephew. And since I had literally just read this book before my trip, it was on my mind that I wanted to help them to feel capable. And I did little things like asking my five-year-old nephew if he knew the way to his preschool instead of just plugging it into the GPS. And he said that he thought that he did. And so I had him direct me in the car and give me directions. When we got there, I thanked him and told him that since I'm from out of town, I would have gotten lost if it hadn't been for him and if he hadn't known the way. And I could tell he felt so proud and capable and needed in that moment. So I think that we don't necessarily need to add additional opportunities to teach our kids, we just need to be aware of the little opportunities that are a part of daily life and remember to give them independence and the chance 
to be capable. As we head into summer, I know many of us are going to be around our children a lot more, which means that there's going to be lots of opportunities for us to teach them <laughs> when misbehaviors arise, as well as in those little day-to-day you know, conversations. So I'm really so grateful that we had this series now at the beginning of the summer. And just as a reminder, please fill out that three to five minute survey. It means so much to me and will be so helpful. 3in30podcast.com forward slash survey or in the show notes of this episode. And as always, I'm rooting for you and I hope that you have a great week with your family.